world is a vampire Sent to drain Secret destroyers Hold you up to the flames And what do I get For my pain Betray desires And a piece of the game Yeah, even though I know I suppose I'll show all my cool and cold like poachers. I want you guys to all look at the date here. This premiered on the 12th. Obviously, I had done it beforehand, but you need to see this because it's November 12th that it was premiered, even though it was done the day before. And I want you guys to um, listen to what's going on here. Let me fast forward it. And I did this. Let me show you what I did. Uh, well, actually, I'll tell you what it is. So I'm going to take you there before it's taken down. But here's how I'm going to walk you through a super hijack. So I've, uh, you know, there are many, many times that I've said a few things. And even though there's evidence of uh, such things going on, obviously, there's always that inclination. Well, there's so many people that are promoting this one person, this individual. It can't be bad. It can't. We just can't fathom it. So there is um, a, a movement, as you all know, uh, that is um, called, that's called uh, Stop the Steal. Uh, Stop the Steal U.S. Well, they just got busted. It's actually not something that is legitimate in the sense of here's all these events and these people that are coming. They're great people, right? Great people. But when you hit the donate button, I'm going to show you where it takes you. It's not for the president. It's not for that. Here is where it takes you. It takes you to one-time donations to Cash App and PayPal of Ali Alexander, a convicted felon for fraud. He is telling people to give him money. Someone actually donated thinking that it was going to the president's fund and the president's fund for Stop the Steal. Now, how can something like that happen? I mean, this guy, you know, has to be working with the president, says everyone. Well, I'll tell you how he did the fraud. So as you see, he's the one collecting the money and you're not seeing it because I didn't share the screen. Let me do it again. I apologize for that. Here we go. One-time donations. I urge you to go yourself and check it out. Don't take my word for it. Go to stopthesteal.us, click the donate button, and it goes straight to him, to his cash app, to his Bitcoin, to his PayPal. It's not going to the president. It's going to him. It is going to him. So I want all of you, anyone that donated to this, to file an FBI cybercrime report for misrepresentation. So this is who is collecting your money. Now, let me show you how he did the scam. 
something because I've been following this because I knew they were going to pin it on our president. And that was the whole plan all along. And I'm going to show you this. So this is his website. Stop the steal. March for Trump. This Freedom Plaza. Here are all the great people that are going. But here's the thing. They're not organizing with Ali Alexander. Here's where they're really organizing. Just so you see how frauds like this work. So people that are actually attached to the campaign are working on getting this march done. Here is the official site. And as you can see, uh, this site is actually StolenElection.us. Let me type it out. StolenElection.us. And I'll put it on the screen. So that is the official, you know, grassroots movement. Right. And as you can see, they have a hashtag stop the steal. So this is from Kylie uh, Jane Kremer, who works with the campaign. She's for women for Trump. She's incredible. He's taken all her events and her hashtag and moved it to his own site. So he moved it to his own site, which he calls StopTheSteal.us and made it look official by taking the information from them and putting it on his own site. That's basically what he did. That is what he did. There is no uh, doubt, nothing. I mean, nobody can doubt that. You can see it yourself. Uh, he go to stopthesteel.us, click donate, and you're giving money to Ali Razak Akbar. I filed my cybercrime report, but here's what else he's been doing. So, as I told you, he is the, the blackmail king, right? And um, uh, he blackmails people to do his bidding. So he will blackmail them by threatening them. So here's a threatening one of many tweets threatening people that if they don't mention StopTheSteal.us, they will be primaried and they are deep state or us. Now, he has a lot and when I say a lot, a lot of blackmail on a lot of people. This guy is a thief. He's a fraud. And I don't know why anyone that works with the Trump campaign or anything would be even close to that. So why am I putting this flashback on, right? It's important that you guys pay attention. Pay attention because promises kept after promises are made. And see, today subpoenas were issued to him and his partner who's who created some LLC days after my report for this company, right? They want to know where the money's going. And I'm really, really glad that good people didn't take any money from earlier. And, you know, it's all going to come out. It's about time. I mean... Every show has to has, have an act, right? Act one, act two. I mean, we've overdone it with the acts and the chapters, okay? Constantly delays, delays, because people that are supposed to be on our side decide, well, that was a sweet deal. Maybe I'll work for the other side right now because uh, they're giving me more. They're giving me more. Well, you know, it's, 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 I want you guys to listen to this report by CBS in regards to this uh, January 6th subpoenas from a couple of days ago, not the ones that were issued today, from a couple of days ago. I want you to take a listen. Oops, 
You can't listen because the volume's not on. So let me get this done. Biscuit is so talkative today. My gosh. Investigators are trying to get a better timeline of the events leading up to the riot at the Capitol on January 6th. They are issuing new subpoenas aimed at those who organized the Stop the Steal rally that day. That's where then-President Trump encouraged the crowd to march to the Capitol, saying, quote, if you don't fight like hell, CBS News senior investigative correspondent Catherine Herridge joins me now with details. Hi there, Catherine. So the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol recently issued 11 additional subpoenas. Who exactly do they want to talk to? Well, I mean, they really want to understand who were the organizers behind the Stop the Steal rally and in the simplest terms, whether one of their intents was to create a crowd that would then be leveraged to facilitate the riots and the shutting down of the certification of the Electoral College. So it goes to issues of premeditation and issues of intent, Elaine. Well, what do those new subpoenas tell us about the, the direction of the investigation? Mm. What the subpoenas are showing us right now, based on our reporting here at CBS News, is that the select committee is trying to lay out the timeline. The timeline is essential to any kind of investigation. And in this particular case, they're looking at the rally that happened on the ellipse about 90 minutes before the Capitol riots began. And if you think back to that day, a little afternoon Eastern was when President Trump talked about having strength and going up to the Capitol. If you fast forward about 45 minutes, people had started to make their way from the ellipse up to the Capitol. It's about a mile distance. But already crowds had formed at the western perimeter of the Capitol, and they began breaching those outermost exterior barriers. Those were almost like the bicycle racks before the riots ensued. And the reason all of this matters is it goes to an idea that, pardon me, I've got a phone call here, and I'm just going to turn it off. You know how the news never stops. Um, what happens in these particular cases is it goes to this idea of having buckets of suspects. On the one hand, you have individuals who are premeditated, had some kind of plan in advance, went to the Capitol before the rally, and then you had people who were opportunists on the day. And that's also how we see these indictments break down. Well, some of President mm -hmm. Trump's former staff have until the end of this week mm -hmm. to comply with subpoenas. Catherine, do we know who has complied and what comes next for them? Well, I can't say on my reporting that we know who has complied, but we know who the individuals who have received the subpoenas are. So we have Steve Bannon, a longtime political advisor to President Trump, Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff, Dan Scavino, who was the deputy chief of staff at the White House, as well as Cash Patel, who was the chief of staff then to the acting secretary of defense. I was able to reach out to one of them today and they would not indicate to me whether they'd made a decision on whether they would try to block the subpoenas in federal court. So that is the thing to watch next, whether they will in fact block them or whether they will in fact comply in some form, either through providing records or sitting for these depositions. All right. Well, a new data hack of the Oath Keepers website reveals that law enforcement officers are part of the anti-government group. What are we learning about that, Catherine? Well, the data dump is very interesting because what you see is about 200 individuals, either current or former law enforcement, 
in some ways volunteered themselves to the Oath Keepers. This is a group that believes the federal government is taking extraordinary steps to strip away their constitutional rights. And what's interesting about the data set is it indicates people were asked to volunteer some of their skill sets. So whether they had SWAT training, weapons training, surveillance training, sort of counterintelligence training, a kind of skill set that would allow the leaders of the Oath Keepers to search the database for the kind of skills they might need for a certain event or a certain operation. I think it's worth noting that when you look at the more than 700 people who have been arrested in connection to the Capitol riots, you do find about two dozen current and former law enforcement, but it represents ultimately a very small percentage of those who were alleged to have been involved that day. Meantime, a federal judge said Friday that the Justice Department has not treated the Capitol rioters fairly. Catherine, what is that based on? Well, this judge, Trevor McFadden, is uh, an appointee of President Trump. And at the end of last week, in a case involving an Oklahoma woman, Daniel Doyle, he said the government had overreached in what they were seeking for a sentence. They wanted a type of home confinement and then also a fine. In this particular case, the individual was found and admitted to trespassing on this restricted property, in this case, the Capitol. But there was no evidence in, in the video that was presented to the court that they engaged in any destructive activity um, on the Capitol. And the judge made the point that someone who, based, if I recall correctly, did not have a criminal record and did not engage in violent or destructive activity, um, should not have home confinement. He elected to sentence her to probation. And, and the reason all of this got so much attention is because there's one perspective that they feel the January 6th individuals have been getting a much harsher treatment within the judicial system than people who took part in the demonstrations uh, in the summer leading up to the election here in Washington. All right, Catherine Harris for us. Catherine, we'll let you get back to what I'm sure is a very urgent yes. source call. <laughs> Someone trying to get you. <laughs> the life of an investigative correspondent. Thank you. Catherine, we always appreciate having you. Thank I'm you so much. I'm happy to do it. Yeah. Congressional. Hmm, that was interesting, wasn't it? So Catherine Harridge pretty much laid it out. They want to find out if it was premeditated, if it was pre-organized, and guess what? They're going to find out kind of was. And I'm going to take you on a little trip, okay? Let's remember something that Ali Akbar told the world, okay? What did he tell the world? He told the world that all these Arizona people were helping him. What are we having a problem with in Arizona? Oh, that's right. Showing the fraud. Remember how he kept saying, uh, all these people in Arizona promoted me. I got in with all of the people in Arizona, blah, blah, blah. What problems are we having right now in Arizona? Kind of a coincidence, I guess, right? Super coincidence. Super coincidence. Because, you know, I still, I remember to like bright, that like it was so, I, I, I sat there and I was like, who, what is going on here? I didn't even want to stay in the tents, you know, where people were like, oh, look, that's a celebrity. Like, I really didn't give a shit. I was out there talking to people. Regular people, my people, you. 
having cigarettes with you. I met with Chris Ford, if I remember. God, I miss with so many of you. Just hanging out in the back having cigarettes. Because they didn't want to be in there. They were all so pretentious. And like they're important. And they're absolutely nobodies. But the thing that bothered me the most was the fact that, you know, Ali Akbar showed up. And I'm like, what is he doing there? Why is he there? And who are, well, when did this happen? That wasn't on the schedule. Why is Matt Couch here? What? I was like so confused. And I just <laughs> just remember looking at Patrick and he was like, I just waiting to see Ali Akbar, you know, and Ali Akbar didn't say shit to his face, didn't say anything to me either, except for once when he was upset, when I told him, you know, what are you doing here? You don't even have a pass. You can't get people in. And I just looked at the security guard. Don't, uh-uh. And he was like, nye, 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 nye. right? The thing is, I knew what he was planning. Not exactly, but I knew that he was doing something, right? I knew that he was doing something, right? And the thing is, I knew about it since October, right? And I was reporting it and tweeting about it and doing, and you know what? Everyone thought, Tori's just salty. Well, where's my salty now? Hmm? Hmm? Oh, Tori's just salty. I wasn't salty. Don't be dumb. There's a lot of people that talk shit about me, right? And how am I going to sit there and say anything? I would say as much as I can. But at that point, all I could do was watch because I can't because they're just like you thinking that I'm salty, right? I wasn't salty. This guy is a terrorist, okay? He's a freaking terrorist. He was pushing the color revolution. Like it was so blatant. Now he's going to go. And he's got to provide documentation. Let's see it. Because I'm going to make sure that this committee has all the documents to see that he filed his group after he was taking money. He kind of did that shit years ago in luck and almost got himself thrown in jail again with the IRS. So, you know, these are very important things. Very important things. Super important things. I mean, we're seeing a lot of things come to fruition that you didn't expect. So let's get, let's get down to like the gritty, nitty, itty part. So yesterday I wanted to cover this whole COVID stuff, right? Where we're all talking about COVID, the medicines, the vaccines, and now a pill. And I have been talking many, many times about Martin Shkreli, who was locked up for crimes that were less than that of freaking Hillary Clinton. Right. And that chick from Theranos. But, you know, on her board, she had Kissinger and Mad Dog Mattis. So I guess she's outside enjoying herself. But he's got to be in jail. Why is he in jail? Because they think he committed. He didn't have a leg that they wanted him in. Why, though? That's the question. Everyone like Cassandra Fairbanks, all the fucking tools going out to him. Oh, my God. He's such an ass. He took an AIDS pill and totally racked up the price. And now nobody can afford it. And it's like, bitch, no one was selling it. That's the point. Nobody knew about it. And because nobody knew about it, they thought no one would see the patent. So the minute that shit popped, he bought it. And then he drove the price up to sky high. And they were like, damn, what are you doing? You can't do that. We've got some rich people that are getting this shit for free. People aren't supposed to know about this medication, Mr. Martin Shkreli, pharma bro, right? And then they take him to court and he's like, I'm confident. I didn't do anything. They locked him up anyway. 
He's he's a political prisoner. It's not so much that he did anything wrong. He's a freaking political prisoner. And you know what they used against him? The fact that he was walking one day in New York and he said, somebody get me a hair of Hillary Clinton. They'll tell you who she is or what she is. And boom, he was locked up. Why? <laughs> because he was going to tell the world what was coming. See, this new pill that they're pushing is the pill he had. So weird. So freaking weird. So, so weird that this young man, you know, sitting in prison right now, you know, why? Because he brought attention to a pill. You'd never even hear about it. You probably think it would be a miracle drug. It's not. It's the one that he had, the one that he found that nobody looked at, bought the patent and said, well, $700 a pill. That's not right. It was 15 cents. Farmer, bro, you're so disgusting. And he's like, no, nobody even knew about this medication. This wasn't even being prescribed. Who was taking this med? Why was it on the market? Who's taking it? Questions, questions, questions. And now he's in jail. But, you know, I digress, right? It's all about the goodness, right? Nobody likes him, right? Farmer, bro, how disgusting that you raise the price. Why would anyone raise something from 15 cents to 700 if not to get attention? See, that's what they do. If you betray any of them, if you point the finger at any of them, they throw you in jail. And if they can't throw you in jail because they can't find a way to frame you for a crime, they'll just lawfare you and ridicule you and smear you everywhere in documents. So that way no one listens to you. When are you guys going to learn? Dr. Judy Mikovits, same, right? Martin Shkreli. I mean, look at Flynn. <laughs> they started talking smack. I mean, they did it to our president. You think they're not going to do it to you, me, nobody? That's what's so dumb. Yet everyone, so I know best. You know, fuck all. These people are heroes. You may not like him because he's a little bit cocky, made a shit ton of money as a young guy, and he's Albanian. Don't hold it against him. <laughs> That's a joke, okay? That's a joke. <laughs> but he was... He was, he had balls. Okay. I mean, he had balls. I feel terrible that no one is, is even bothering with him. The right had a great job smearing him. Farmer bro. What a disgusting. Cause he was smug. He knew exactly what he was talking about. That guy knew, you know, everyone else is a beta lately. Oh, you know, Dan Scavino, he's like Carmen Sandiego. Where is he? Well, he showed us where he was. He was in New York twits like a week ago. Remember, he found our sticker. It's not like he's hiding. Stop. But, you know, regardless, regardless, they're going to report how President Trump's lawyer is telling allies not to comply with subpoenas for January 6th. Stop it. We want to comply. We want to show exactly which Republicans helped make this shit happen, don't we? <laughs> I mean, faux Republican. Take a listen. And today, the attempted coup is detailed in this nearly 400-page Senate report. Trump directly asked Justice Department officials nine times to undermine the result. And when the former president considered replacing then-acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen with loyalist Jeffrey Clark, a DOJ lawyer who supported the election lies, White House counsel Pat Cipollone threatened to quit. 
It was Cipollone who spoke up and said that he thought that this scenario and what they were trying to achieve was a murder-suicide pact and the president should not do it. The committee's report is the most comprehensive account so far of Trump's wide-ranging plot. New revelations include accounts from inside the Oval Office on January 3rd, when Trump blamed former U.S. Attorney B.J. Pock for failing to find mass election fraud in Georgia and wanted him fired. That prompted acting Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue to call Pock that night to tell him to preemptively resign, which he did. Republicans have already issued a rebuttal to the report, dismissing the idea that Trump was attempting a coup, noting that ultimately no action was taken by the DOJ. So President Trump assembled a bunch of people in his uh, office and they discussed what they ought to do. There is still more to find out. The committee is still waiting for records from the National Archives, which could shed more light on the pressure campaign coming from inside the White House. And Democrats say Jeffrey Clark has not yet agreed to an interview. This has been a massive attack on the integrity of the voting system in the greatest democracy on earth. Meanwhile, new court documents reveal Rudy Giuliani and other Trump allies testified under oath that they did little to verify these false election fraud claims before blasting them out to the public. In a sworn deposition, Giuliani acknowledged he did not have all the facts before falsely accusing a Dominion Voting Systems executive of changing votes for Joe Biden, defending it this way, saying, we didn't pronounce him guilty. We laid out the facts that we had. And all of this, as the former president continues to insist the election was rigged, Trump released a statement criticizing the work of the January 6th Select Committee, saying lawmakers should conclude that the real insurrection happened on November 3rd, the presidential election, not on January 6th. And the Select Committee just issued two new rounds of subpoenas to more people involved in planning the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th. That was a precursor to the Capitol attack. One of the subpoenas is to the Stop the Steal group leader, Ali Alexander. He actually previously claimed that he worked closely with Republican congressmen planning the rally and that he communicated with the White House. And Jake, of course, all of those. <laughs> he never communicated with the White House. Oh, my gosh. Here we go. Major points of interest for the select committee moving forward. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois. He's the Senate Majority Whip. And he's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee that just released this report. Um, Senator, thanks for joining us. I'll get to your report in a moment, but I want to get your reaction to this breaking news from The Washington Post uh, that former President Trump is telling his aides to not comply with the House's special committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, which has subpoenaed those four aides. I mean, clearly, this shouldn't surprise you, and I'm sure it doesn't. Do you think this is grounds, however, for charges against Trump and these aides of obstruction of Congress. Let's take it one step at a time. I don't think uh, Mr. Trump's aides are ever going to ask me for advice, but I would suggest uh, modestly follow the law instead of the ravings of this former president. He is, uh, doesn't have the power to pardon you anymore, and probably I hope never will again. And be careful. Follow the law, even if the president is begging you to stay away because of the evidence that you might present. What about holding them in contempt of Congress or holding former President Trump? I'm, I'm not going to jump ahead of the uh, script here. Uh, I think it's up to the select committee to issue the subpoenas. Just just so you understand what Dickie Durbin did right here is that he told them, hey, he can't pardon you, but we can. Come and tell us what we want to hear. <laughs> tell us what we want to hear. 
and to react uh, to the to witnesses and whether they comply with them. I'm not going to presume the outcome of that. I'll let them uh, take care of that. So let's turn to your report, which is uh, rather stunning. It lays out some just very upsetting uh, claims made by former Trump officials, uh, including the acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen. But is anything in here that was done by President Trump or uh, DOJ official Jeffrey Clark or anyone else actually a violation of a law? I can't tell you, Jake, whether it's a specific law that was violated, but I can tell you this for sure. We were a half step away from a constitutional crisis, the likes of which this nation has never seen. Think back on this. November 3rd election. Trump disputes the results, refuses to accept them, goes to 50 or 60 courts across the United States to make his case, flops and fails and every. Wait a minute. What is he talking about? November 3rd, we didn't have fucking results. Okay, on November 3rd at night, Trump won. And then we wake up in the morning and still no elections. What kind of election was he in another universe? Because if I remember correctly, we didn't even have results until like a couple days later. What kind of bullshit is this? See, this is it. Oh, you don't remember. So I'm just going to tell you what the story is. Oh, and he went around flipping and flopping. Dickie Durbin, lazy eye. Every single one of them. Next step. Let's go to the Department of Justice. He's got a new attorney general, acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, calls him immediately. And as the record uh, we presented shows on nine different occasions, either on the phone or calling him into the White House, is badgering this man to buy into the big lie theory. Gives him these crazy theories of vote fraud generated by none other than Rudy Giuliani and others off the Internet. And Rosen just basically. All right. I want to know which PR firm Edelman came up with the term big lie. Okay, because this is some term that they were taught, a talking point that all of them just regurgitate again and again and again. The big lie, the big lie, the big lie is what we're watching now. This is like you're watching a show. This is ridiculous. This is all scripted. This is all terrible. We need a boomerang in that bitch. He says, no, they're not credible. I'm not going to do it. Then comes the moment where Trump basically threatens to take away his title as attorney general and put his buddy Jeffrey Clark in the position. I want to tell you at that moment, January 3rd or 4th of this year, uh, it was a critical moment in our nation's history. Thank goodness the president relented at the last second. His own counsel, Pat Cipollone, basically said it was a murder-suicide pact that he was considering mm -hmm. and that there were going to be resignations all across the country if he did anything this radical. But the president was prepared to do this up until the very last minute. So, as you know, Republicans on your committee put out a rebuttal to your report. Uh, their top list, uh, the top listed defense of President Trump is, quote, President Trump listened to his advisors, including high level Department of Justice officials and White House counsel and followed their recommendations, unquote. In other words, they're saying whatever they talked about doing, they didn't ultimately actually do. How did you How do you respond? If I could put that in simple terms, I believe what they're saying, well, it wasn't a coup. It was only an attempted coup. Well, that's the basic evidence before us. It was an attempt by the president of the United States to persuade the attorney general to do something unprecedented in American history without, a, without any support in the law. And he failed in that effort. But he sure as hell tried nine different occasions, relentlessly badgering this acting attorney general. Thank goodness he stood his ground. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with what you're saying, uh, and the report is alarming. It adds new, shocking details to what we 
already knew. Um, but I guess my question is, now what? What are you going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again? This doesn't have to do with, for instance, the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. This well, is about corrupt officials abusing their power uh, and attempting or discussing disenfranchising millions of Americans. What are you going to do? Well, some things have already been done. Merrick Garland, the new attorney general, has established new standards for communication between the White House and the Department of Justice. The last time we took a serious look at this, there was a president named Nixon in office, and we were in the middle of Watergate. But it's time to take a look at the standards of communications. Mark Meadows, every time some harebrained theory would cross his desk, was calling the acting attorney general saying, here's proof positive, investigate this one. Well, those sorts of things go way beyond the bounds of what we thought were the established standards. The second thing is to say that the Department of Justice has no business trying to change the outcome of an election in the United States. Go after alleged illegality? For sure. But changing the outcome of the election? Hold back. That's just way too far. Right. But I guess one of the things that, that the Trump era and especially uh, the last few months of the Trump presidency revealed to the nation is how much of our system here in the United States depends on the honor system. And if there is a group of political leaders who have no honor, that's not going to work. So what more can be done? I'll tell you what happened here. Jeffrey Rosen was uh, deputy attorney general, and I questioned whether he was ready for that job based on his background. <clears throat> then came the time when he was actually the uh, acting attorney general for a long period of time. He stood his ground. And that really is at the core of a functioning democracy. People are willing to stand up for principle, even under withering political criticism. And how bad could it have been to get a telephone call after telephone call from the president of the United States? Yeah, but that's my point. I mean, the Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's over there are the minority. Brad Raffensperger is about to lose his job, possibly, as secretary of state in Georgia, uh, to Jody Heiss, a congressman who is all in on the big lie. I mean, they're preparing to do it again. History is going to be kind to these people. I'm certain of it. And when it's all over, that's really a measure of public service. Well, history. Did you stand up for principle and value, even at the risk of losing an election? I think many of these people will be treated very well by history. History is written by the winner, so I guess we'll see. Judiciary Committee Chairman Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, thank you so much. Appreciate Did it. Did you hear that? History will be written by the winners. We all know that. We all know that. We all know that. But who's the winners? Like I've been doing on my Instagram is putting out heroes of our story. You are the heroes of our story. We're the ones writing it. They're the ones that wish they could write it. Okay? History will not be kind to any of them. It will be not kind to many people that you know, your neighbors, your friends. It will not be kind at all because we live in a time where the people have no say. Your voice was stolen at the ballot box. It was completely stolen at the ballot box. You were not allowed to speak and it's not the first time it's happened for a very, very, very long time. And yet for some reason, people are shocked now. Well, Forbes put out something quite interesting. I want you guys to listen to it carefully and see how they want to spin. Take a listen to this. Wait, hold on. Let me see if you can, though. We've got to make sure that you can. Yes, here we go. 
Uh, Sellers and Supervisor Gates, uh, thank you for, for being here today. You are both uh, lifelong Republicans. Mr. Gates, I, I understand that you even founded a teenage Republican party while you were in high school. And I, I don't think anyone would question either of you for your long-held allegiance uh, to the Republican Party. Yet you have both been outspoken messengers that the 2020 election was safe, secure, and fair. Even when that message has brought you into conflict with members of your own party. Nearly every Republican in the Arizona State Senate voted to hold both of you in contempt for standing up against the Cyber Ninja audit. One Republican state senator called for the entire Maricopa board to be arrested and put in solitary confinement. Uh, my question for you, Supervisor Gates, uh, why have you chosen to speak out so forcefully on this issue, even against some members of your own party? Well, thank you, Madam Chair. It hasn't been easy to do this. I have been a lifelong Republican, and I'm proud to be a Republican. But I'm also a member of the Board of Supervisors, and was, as was mentioned earlier, the Board of Supervisors took more authority in running elections in 2020 because we wanted to run an excellent election, and we believe that that's what, what has happened here. But, but the problem is that as people have been distorting what happened in this election. I have no problem with people raising questions. What I have a problem with is people going to the lengths, as you mentioned. We had gone to court to get direction from a superior court judge on whether we had the legal authority to turn the ballots over. We had asked for an expedited hearing. And despite that, the Arizona State Senate was one vote away from holding us in contempt and most likely detaining us. That was wrong. It was also wrong uh, once they had the ballots, in my opinion, to conduct an audit by with auditors who had no elections experience and then also auditors who clearly had a preconceived notion. I don't have a problem with audits. I had concerns with this particular audit, and that's why I'm speaking out. And Chairman Sellers, uh, what about you? Why are you speaking out today? When I first got on the Board of Supervisors, we were in the process of taking the, the parts of the election process back that we could because we'd had some issues with elections in the past couple of elections, people waiting in lines for four or five hours and those kind of things. And the interesting thing to me was that every step of the way, we were we ensured that we were staying within the U.S. and the Arizona Constitution on everything we did. When we were faced with a pandemic and had to, to change the way we were going to run the election from a precinct-based model to a, a vote center model, we again went back to the political parties, to the Secretary of State, to the Governor, to the Attorney General, and got their agreement on everything we were doing that it was legal and and uh, going to provide us with uh, a safe, secure election going forward. Thank you. So, thank you, thank you. Reclaiming my time, I have very little limited time. Mr. Sellers and Mr. Gates, 
you faced pressure to support President Trump's big lie even before the audit started. On Christmas Eve last year, former President uh, Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, called both Mr. Sellers and Mr. Gates as part of Trump's pressure campaign to try to overturn the election results in Arizona. Neither of you picked up, so he left a voicemail message. I'd like to play one of those voicemails now that Mr. Giuliani left for Chairman Sellers. May we hear the audio now, please? Hi, Giuliani, uh, President uh, Trump's attorney calling. I'm hoping we could have a chance to have a, a conversation. I'd like to see if there's a way that we could resolve this so it comes out well for everyone. We're all Republicans. I think we all have the same goal. Let's see if let's see if we can get you know, get this done outside of the courts. Gosh. Okay, call me. Anytime. No problem. Bye. Mr. Giuliani said, and I quote, we all, we're all Republicans. I think we all have the same goal. I'd like to ask you, Supervisor Gates, what do you think that goal was? And uh, you got a similar call where he said uh, he asked you to, quote, get this thing fixed up, end quote, and saying, quote, I think there may be a nice way to resolve this. What, what do you think what, Mr. Giuliani no, wanted you to do? Madam, Madam Chair, just a point of order real quick. Um, I hope I'm going to be extended the same courtesy to go beyond the five-minute limit. Absolutely. Uh, Madam Chair, that voicemail was left at a time. We were in litigation with the state Senate over turning over the ballots in the election machines. I think he was trying to get us to settle that lawsuit so that they could very quickly get the ballots in advance of the January 6th certification of the elect Electoral College. And, and why was this so important? What was Mr. Mr. Giuliani's ultimate goal? What do you think his ultimate goal was? Well, I, you know, I can't speculate uh, on that, but I think that he wanted to uh, look at the evidence and see if there was evidence to support not certifying the election. And I, I want to thank you both. My time is up. And the many other state and local officials who stood up to Trump's pressure campaign and turned back his efforts to overturn a free and fair election. The late Senator from Arizona, John McCain, once said, and I quote, we are Americans first, Americans last, Americans always. Uh, I agree, we are Americans before we are members of any political party. Uh, Chairman Sellers and Supervisor Gates, I hope other Republicans, including my colleagues in Congress, follow the example that that you set today. I want to thank you for your testimony. Thank you so much. I now recognize. So Rudy Giuliani didn't say anything wrong. What was the goal, guys? What was the goal for all Republicans to have fair elections, fair elections? How are we going to have fair elections if they don't want you voting? That's the question everyone should ask themselves. How are we going to have fair elections when they do not want us voting. They have not allowed us to vote in the United States ourselves for over two decades. Fact. That's a fact. I don't want to hear anything else. Fact. So how are we going to fix this? You would think that the Republicans are all on the same page unless they get a nice house in Costa Rica, right? Or El Salvador, or maybe the Dominican. And, you know, they just sell you out because, look, I got to take care of my family. I don't need to go through this. I've heard it from my own people that I work with. 
I don't want to be like you, Tori. You're looking over your shoulder. You may not have food the next day. They can erase you. I don't want to do that. I got kids. At least they'll be taken care of. And it's like, oh my gosh, what about the kids that don't have anyone to take care of them? Yeah, you know, we can't help everyone. And how are you helping your kids when they're going to live in a hellhole? How about their kids? You want people to be slaves because you don't want to get uncomfortable? The only way we make change is by getting uncomfortable. Now, the election controversy, as they want to call it on Fox, is one thing. But what about what the Biden administration is doing to parents? Parents concerned about their children's education, that's a lot of them, and their right to speak freely about it, are meeting today in Virginia. This conference and the conference attendees are describing the Biden administration's newest effort as trying to control dissent against school boards. The Department of Justice claims it's about safety. Concerned parents say it's designed to push them to be quiet and just go along. Correspondent Mark Meredith reports tonight from Leesburg, Virginia. We just have to keep speaking. Amy Rogers is a Northern Virginia mom turned education activist. She says she's proud to be speaking up at her local school board meetings. It's a free country. Last time I checked and we still have freedom of speech and we're taxpayers of this county. Um, our children go there. Rogers and other conservatives say they're fired up after Attorney General Merrick Garland's recent memo urging the government to do more to protect school board members. <laughs> The Biden administration says it's stepping in because it believes education officials nationwide are facing increasing threats of violence as parents voice outrage on a number of issues. Regardless of the reasoning, uh, threats and violence against public servants is illegal. That's what he was They're conveying not serving. from the Department of Justice. The government is also urging the public to report threats to the FBI, a directive that has Republicans, including Texas Senator Ted Cruz, outraged. The attorney general told the Department of Justice, that those parents at school boards should be treated as threats and as domestic terrorists. Cruz and fellow Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee sent the attorney general a letter today demanding to know why the Justice Department is involved at all. They write, the FBI should not be involved in quashing and criminalizing discourse that is well beneath violent acts. Interest groups representing school boards are thanking the Justice Department for getting involved. But parents like Amy, who are attending a summit hosted by the Family Research Council, say they have no plans to stay quiet. We have everything writing against what is happening in our schools, and it makes more people even want to speak out. Parents here at the summit say, of course, they don't want to see anyone get hurt, but they worry the government is simply going to be bullying people into silence. As for the Justice Department, Brett, it says it stands behind its directive and it hopes to have some new ideas in a few weeks. How about how it can help protect school board officials? Brett. Mark Meredith in Virginia. Mark, thanks. The you mean the parents woke up and realized that they have all the power and the school boards are diddly squat, right? And now they're taking control. And they don't like that because, hey, we're coming for your kids. And if you're not letting us come for your kids, you're going to get upset. And this is not a good thing. We need you guys to shut up. So stop talking. That's basically what they're telling you. And you know who's uh, who they're covering for, right? Because it's masks and vax and the elections. They don't want people talking about that stuff. They would prefer that you have something like this. Because this is coming. Mm-hmm.
Technology has helped that country achieve extraordinary growth, but critics say it is facilitating a surveillance state. Tonight, we begin two stories focusing on Chinese technology. It's part of our series, China, Power and Prosperity. With the support of the Pulitzer Center, Nick Schifrin begins in a remote area that is becoming more connected. In China's Lipu Mountains, past rolling hillside farms, the remote city of Guilin is nestled into a valley and built along a riverbank that's been inhabited for 10,000 years. Today, this old town is getting older. The population is older and often needs medical care. The closest hospital is far, so on this day, they line up for a mobile clinic on a bus. Visiting specialists have a small room in the back for x-rays, and a nearby room for eye specialists to check for cataracts. In this clinic, everything is electronic, and all the patient records and data feed into a single phone application. It's made by the company Ping An, and the app is called Good Doctor. Local doctor Luo Jiang Shang says the technology changes everything. Before we had this platform, patients had to go so far away. It was a big burden. Now, with this platform, it saves both money and time. For decades, a country that suffered from widespread rural poverty relied on so-called barefoot doctors to provide remote areas medical care. Today, technology from medicine to telecommunications to artificial intelligence is helping transform the country. China is quite unique because it's been a rapidly developing country. So we have um, very varying uneven distribution. Technology helps to bridge those gaps uh, and deliver service, uh, particularly in an environment like this. Jessica Tan is the co-CEO of Ping An, who's building towers over Shenzhen, China's Silicon Valley. Ping An boomed financially into the world's second largest insurance company. But now it's celebrating by turning old insurance into new tech. Last month, Ping An unveiled new facial recognition software for drivers, those markings judge whether she's a good driver and feeds all of her data into Ping An's database. Micro expression A separate application uses facial recognition to determine whether Ping An loan applicants are lying about their identity by examining more than 90 distinct expressions. When you're nervous, there are these micro expressions that people will do. System identifies abnormal emotions. Verifying the person who they are supposed to be, uh, um, in, in most cases, is quite accurate. So I think already better than the human eye. And those human eyes, China's 1.4 billion citizens, are now entering more and more data on their phones. And in China, it's big data. Ping'an's healthcare app has 250 million users. Ping An's car accident app that can automatically assess and cost damage has 200 million users. And China has developed so recently, the majority of all of those users have never owned cars or borrowed money or earned a credit score. So to choose loan applicants, Ping An's developed a social credit score based on all of the data users enter into their phones. Having the expertise to change that series of raw information to actually a credit report or score that people trust. So we're able to uh, do that based on your mobile phone bills, your shopping rackets, right? Are you, you do splurge on your spending. Um, if you have a good credit record, you get the loans faster at a cheaper rate. Um, so I think the idea is then uh, there's incentive for people who have nothing to hide to want to share. But in communist China, who decides who has nothing to hide? 
like Ping An, the government is now converting data on its citizens into social credit scores. It's called Sharp Eyes, and those eyes are electronic thanks to the world's most advanced surveillance. The five most surveilled cities in the world are Chinese. China now has more than 200 million cameras, including at the entrance to an international conference. And cameras use software that recognize not only faces, but also how people walk and can then track their location as they move. That allows cameras to judge behavior. In Shenzhen, cameras watch this intersection. If people jaywalk, they're publicly shamed when their faces are displayed on the screen. Do you think because that camera is there, more people cross legally? Of course. They're afraid to be seen doing something inappropriate. So they will change their behavior. If you jaywalk, it reduces your credit score. For example, if you cross the red light, your score would be reduced by two to three. Behavior change is exactly what the government wants. And the credit score system is so important, there's even a Communist Party-produced national credit magazine. Wu Xiaoyan is the editor-in-chief. The Chinese system's main purpose is to build a credible society of trust. This system has become an effective measure in our social governance. For example, on the bus, people with regular scores will pay regular price, and people with good scores only pay 80% of that. Rewarding good behavior all across society and punishing bad behavior is enshrined in her magazine. When I look in this magazine, I see an, an honor list in red, and then in black, a blacklist. Those on the red list are people who have trustworthy behavior. Those on the blacklist are people whose behaviors are not trustworthy. Does it work? Does rewarding people who act well and punishing people who act badly make more people act well? Of course it works. And something about that question made her uncomfortable. She and her staff walked out of the interview and the newsroom, but the microphones were still rolling and recorded their conversation about my questions. What kind of question was that? Don't talk about the government. Talk about companies, businesses. We need to be calm. We cannot refuse to be interviewed. Not too rigid or serious. Ten minutes later, she did come back to finish the interview. Everything okay? She said everything was okay, but the government's critics say everything is not okay because they say China's big data is becoming big brother. Companies that use the social credit system and the government say the social credit system improves people's behavior. But critics say that the government can use the social credit system to target and penalize anyone who opposes or criticizes the Communist Party. In Hong Kong, protesters say mainland China is exporting a system of surveillance. So when they demonstrate, they climb up ladders and try and cover up the cameras. And protesters also cover up their faces. This 21-year-old and her friends declined to give their names for fear China would punish them. Although I'm wearing a mask, they're like AI tracking, tracking down our faces. And maybe they will just use computers and recognize us in maybe just one second and having all our identifications and all our informations. We are scared about it. And protesters fear surveillance goes from cameras to inside their phones. They organize these rallies offline because they believe police hacked into their messaging apps. We are super scared that our personal information will leak out and we'll get caught. 
based on these inclinations. Protesters' fears are accurate, says Jean Lifan, a long-standing critic of the government. He was willing to sit for an interview but refused to be seen with us in public, so he met us in our hotel room. Are you, as a constant critic of the government, under surveillance? Of course. We can feel the surveillance all the time. The Chinese authorities use a network of cameras throughout cities, facial recognition systems, as well as various mobile phone apps to monitor individuals. Surveillance is indeed omnipresent. And that surveillance happens automatically and instantaneously. Every day, Chinese citizens send more than 45 billion messages on WeChat, the country's most popular messaging service. If you type in something sensitive, like a reference to the Tiananmen Square massacre in Mandarin, the recipient never receives it. Sometimes my wife and I suddenly can't contact each other. I noticed that whenever foreign media reporters were trying to set up interviews with me, the police would always show up downstairs. And I've noticed that the police who follow me use the same mobile phones from Huawei. Huawei is a $100 billion phone and technology giant. That's the world's largest provider of telecom equipment. U.S. officials describe it as the symbol of high-tech Chinese government suppression and beholden to the Communist Party, alongside fellow telecommunications giant ZTE. As a matter of Chinese law, the Chinese government can rightfully demand access to data flowing through Huawei and ZTE systems. Why would anyone grant such power to a regime that has already grossly violated cyberspace? The Trump administration has mostly blocked U.S. companies from selling technology to Huawei, but the company is expanding its 5G, or fifth-generation phone technology. And Vice President Vincent Pang says business is booming. Uh, All our major customers choose still stay with Huawei. We signed a 50 contract uh, with uh, our major customers for 5G already. And this year, we will deliver 150,000 base stations outside of China. I think that is the fact. And that expansion of Chinese technology around the world has enormous implications for China and the U.S. That story tomorrow night. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Nick Schifrin in Shenzhen, China. So that was from PBS telling you about this two years ago. President Trump had banned all Huawei projects and their technology. And the first thing that Biden did when he was placed in uh, the office of the presidency, that's a mockery right now, uh, (laughs) pretty much gave them the keys to our energy grids and contracts. So I'm going to remind you how this ends. I've played clips from this um, series before, but I think it's time we revisit another one. Here we go. Wait, let's just make sure that we have the sound on. I'm so unprepared today. It's thunderstorming, so nobody knew how to drive. Hi there, how are you doing? I am wonderful. <laughs> I am so sorry, that flight is canceled. No. No, no. Customer incident at the other end. What? So when is the next flight? Yeah, they're all kind of full. Uh, I booked this weeks ago, it's my best friend's wedding. I'm sorry. I have to get there, I have to. Okay, let's see what we can do. Oh, thank you. I see there's one standby seat on another plane leaving tonight. Uh, That's reserved for members of our prime flight program. You got to be a 4.2 or over to qualify. Oh, I'm I'm a Mm 4.2. 
I'm afraid you're actually a 4.183. Well, that's not my fault. Um, some woman dinged me down in the cab driver. Can't you just... I'm sorry, I won't let me book it without the correct ranking. But it's so close. There's just nothing I can do. Christ, I mean, surely. I'm going to have to ask you to moderate your language then. Sorry, it's just... I'm maid of honor. I cannot miss this wedding. And I am so sorry about that. Can you call the supervisor? I cannot do that. Can you just call the supervisor? I cannot do that. Call the fucking supervisor. Okay, that's profanity. We're zero tolerance on profanity. I'm sorry, it's just... Yeah, I have to serve the next customer. No, 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 no. No, 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 Step no, no, away, no, no. ma'am. God, just fucking help me! I've called security. Oh, oh, no, 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 please don't do that. Um, I'm, I'm a five-star in you. Five stars. What's the issue here, Hannah? Intimidation and profanity. Oh, no, 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 I was not intimidating. Don't speak, ma'am. I was just trying ma'am? to... Okay, so, in order to restore calm, I'm invoking my authority as airport security to dock you one full ranking point as a punitive measure. This is a temporary measure. No. The score reverts to normal in 24 hours. No, 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 but During I need it now. Period, all down votes are subject to a times two multiplier. Times two? We recommend you avoid negative feedback at this time. I'm on double damage. Please, remove yourself from the airport immediately. Is that a future you want? That's a future we have already. I actually experienced it a couple months ago without the phone. Um... It was months ago. I was in this place called Rocky Mountain Chocolates. I wanted one of those caramel apples. And so I went there. The cashier register person had the plastic panel as if that, you know, COVID stops there. Stop it. Doesn't go over, under, or anything. And so I went to get a caramel apple. So the lady kindly says, here's a mask. No, thank you. There was a husband and a wife behind me. They were in their 60s. Uh, You know, the pretentious type, probably out on a date walking around Croker Park, you know, which is like this place with a lot of stores and stuff in uh, the west of Cleveland. And uh, I was, the lady was starting to help me and they were like, no, you just need to obey. Why do they let people like that out? that don't listen and just comply. I was just like, and they said it in the same way those people were talking to that lady. Yeah, okay, you know, it's like, are we kidding? Is this really happening? I, I, I was shocked. I was terrified actually, more than anything. Cause I was thinking, damn, all they wanna do is control us. All they wanna do is command us. All they want is good, obedient slaves. And if you're good, you won't be shamed. And if you're not, then you will be shamed. And you will not get on that train. You will not get on that plane. And you will not eat food because we said so. And that's the problem. It's all about self-preservation. This is this is why the left is so like, you better get your vaccine. I did what's good for society. See, I'm a good citizen. I took my vaccine. I'm wearing whatever mask they tell me to. And you need to stop. And they say it with a smile. How pretentious was that? How much did it upset you? It should. And why? Because they get to call the shots so far. Let's just take a break. I'll be right back.
Welcome back. All right. So how do we fix this? I mean, it's so far gone. We voluntarily provided a ton of information. We voluntarily ignored how our government was being run. We voluntarily ignored how everything was happening because freedom isn't free. So how do we fix this? Without saying too much, how do we fix this? Well, obviously we need elections, right? You know, a, a movie came to mind. I'm going to I'm going to show this to you. I want you guys to remember this scene. It's kind of funny-ish. Not really. Here we go. Let's now look back at the wonderful events of the past year. After Wadia's first free elections, President Prime Minister Admiral General Aladdin won 98.8% of the vote. But the big story today is the marriage of President Prime Minister Admiral General Aladdin and his new bride Zoe. I now pronounce you man and wife. Are you okay, my love? What did you step on? Oh, yes. No, no. It's it's my people's tradition. We always smash a glass at weddings. I'm Jewish. What? Mazel tov. <laughs> Are you okay? That's fine. <laughs> I don't mind. That's great. Come here, my love. You remember how he won the elections, right? Bullying, right? You want to see what a five-year elected dictator does? Five terms, sorry. And this is happening around the nation, right? In our states, for example. How does a secretary of state get elected for 26 years straight? How does an attorney general get elected for 20 years straight? It Doesn't that sound weird? Isn't that a bit of a problem? Don't they get comfortable? How does the senator of the state of North Dakota was previously the governor and prior to that, the head of the only state owned bank of North Dakota. How does that happen? Explain to me how all this happens. How does that happen? Look at how many people have been born in Congress and are still alive for some reason in Congress. They're like the walking dead. It's like you probably, it probably smells like the cadaver labs from your first year in med school. Okay. That's how it is. How do they do it? Well, let's listen to this, uh, this guy here. Maybe he can tell you how awesome he is. We're only going to listen to a few minutes. Moved Uganda for 31 years. With five presidential terms in office, Yuweri Museveni is surrounded by controversies related to freedom of speech, human rights, allegations of nepotism, and even the killing of Ugandan citizens. But President Museveni claims Uganda is the most democratic country in the world and that he is leading his people out of poverty and to an even better future. At 72, though, he is three years away from the constitutional age limit to serve as president. But there is already speculation he will try to change that limit so he can get around it. We'll discuss all of this in an exclusive interview as he visited the state of Qatar. Yuweri Museveni, president of Uganda, 
talks to Al-Jazeera. President Yuweri Kagota Museveni uh, talking to Al-Jazeera. Thank you. Your visiting this side of the Middle East, the Arab side, hasn't been a pattern in your foreign policy. What does it mean now? Uh, no, actually, we right from the anti-colonial struggle, we were working with the with Arabs, uh, Gamara Abdul Nasser, uh, King Muhammad the Fifth of Morocco, uh, Ben Bera, Bomedien, later on Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, these are the Arabs we are dealing with in the anti-colonial struggle. Uh, now, we had links with Saudi Arabia through the uh, people who go to, to Mecca. But after our struggles, we had about Dubai. Uh, Dubai had become uh, like an, entre an entrepot. But since 1994, Mr. President, you have shifted to the Israeli side and you have strengthened your ties with the Israelis and made your economic and political deals with the Israelis rather than with the Arabs. Uh, that's not true. Yes, we, we established uh, diplomatic relations with Israel, uh, but we did not abandon our position on... Uh, In terms of economic cooperation? Not, not, not only economic cooperation, even diplomatic. Our stand is uh, principled because originally we did not have relations with Israel because Israel refused to recognize the right of the Palestinians. However, when there was agreement on the two-state two state solution, uh, then we started working with Israel. Uh, uh, we don't have much economic uh, dealings with Israel. Uh, we have dealings on security side, uh, military equipment and things like that. But we buy, we pay. It's not... Uh, is not aid or anything. For the time being, could you tell us something about your present visit and what type of cooperation you are seeking in this during you know, this visit? We have, uh, the, now, Gulf Airlines started coming to Uganda. Gulf Air, Qatari Airways, uh, some other airlines have forgotten their names. There are a number of them. They, they come. So, uh, building on that, then we started getting contacts with the uh, the Qataris, uh, and that's how I came here. So it's not a new shift. It is maybe addition to, to, to what we are doing already. Before leaving the Middle East, uh, last July, when Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visited you in Antebe and you were speaking in his presence, you used the word Palestine several times instead of Israel. And according to the news and the reports, he was very angry. Did you mean that? Did you mean it? And was there a message in it? To the Israelis and the Arabs? You see, for us, as far as this part of the world is concerned, we are guided by the Bible. We read the Bible. I'm not the one who wrote the Bible. The Bible was written, I don't know, by, 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 by the people who wrote it. So all you people are mentioned there. So you stand by your words? Yes. The, that it is Palestine, the, the, not the, Israel? The, 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 the Philistines. Philistines are mentioned. Uh, Judah is mentioned. Uh, Israel is mentioned. You are all there. Ibrahim is mentioned. So you stand by it? Yes, of course. 
it, it upset the Israelis? No, I, I don't know. They didn't tell me. They didn't tell me, and I wouldn't go from the facts to 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 to, to please just to please people. When you were a rebel leader, freedom fighter, mm. you said once that you would never have ties with Israel as long as the Palestinians are homeless. But now you have ties with Israel for about 20 years. The Palestinians are still homeless. No, the, the point was that at that time, Israel had not recognized the Palestinians. Once they did that, then we, we really didn't have any good reason. Because also we don't agree with the other extremism on the Arab side, who are saying that uh, uh, Israel does not belong to the Middle East. Uh, I remember when I went to Iran, I, I talked with those people there, that that position of theirs we could not agree because it is in the Bible. For us, we follow the Bible. Israel is, is there. Uh, Philistines, people called Philistines, a man called Goliath. Yeah, so is it now Palestine or Israel? It, it, can, it, it is both because they were all there. It is both because remember uh, uh, David. Or oh, there must be something our, that is our, very concerning to you about the way you ruled Uganda. Our, our, our achievements and yes, so on. Yes. Uh, you, you see, the uh, Africa, uh, in, including Uganda, are very rich countries. They have got a lot of natural resources. Uh, they are ancient societies with a very old civilization. But the problem has been the organization of the society. Uh, the society was, was organized in a pre-capitalist way, traditional way. So, President, can we talk about the achievements you have done for Uganda in the last that's what I'm That's what I'm coming to. Because the issue was to transform a traditional pre-industrial society to the modern era. And I can tell you that we have achieved a, a lot. We have, first of all, uh, modern education. As I speak today, population of Uganda is like 40 million. More than 25% of them are in schools. Primary schools, secondary schools, universities. Uh, through universal education. On the side of health, that's how the population has jumped from 14 million uh, in 1986 to now 40 million. Uganda is still one of the poorest countries in the world. Uganda still has tremendous problems in terms of infrastructure, sanitation, health issues. All of this is still there. Yeah, they're still there, but we have moved a long way. A long way. How much more time you need after 31 years let, to finish let, off this job and to first, transform Uganda? Let's first talk about yes. the, the, the the marriage covered. Uh, the kilometers of roads we have covered uh, for tarmacking are now approaching 6,000 kilometers from about 800. The, for the first time, we have got surplus electricity. So why did I show you this? As you see, this guy is by definition a dictator since he's constantly the one being elected only. Uh, he has been known to kill people. Yet I can tell you, having gone to Uganda, it's completely the opposite. He's been there for a lot of years. Why? 
because there's no trust. See, the reason that they've delayed and he's so proud of what he did is because he doesn't allow the United Nations to enter. Well, now is a different story. Uganda is completely different. He did not want uh, globalist actions in, but he did need money in order to propel uh, the uh, his nation and his people into the future. So there have been many disgusting choices that he's made, but you have to understand, kind of like other dictators, they didn't become dictators because they were like, yeah, I want to kill people and annihilate them, right? They did it because they didn't want globalists in there, right? Well, the minute globalists enter, it's completely different. If you guys don't remember what happened in Uganda and Rwanda, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, that was that war. That was the war for them to get in and commercialize things. So, you know, Qatar was upset that he struck deals by selling some of their natural resources to Israel since no one around them will trade and not with the Arabs. And he's dinging him and saying, oh, you haven't done this. You haven't done anything. He felt really proud. Now, is it a good thing that he's the only one there? No, because you get comfortable and then you feel like you're the most powerful. Therefore, you can make changes. Right. So that's a problem. But the problem that he was facing, just you have to understand how they work. Right. You have to understand how they operate. He decided this is how good people with good intentions become evil. We're not talking about the evil ones that are there for simply control, recycle, recycle, nepotism. Right. And this is why they never had much to prove. There aren't actual. I've been to Uganda. Right. I've asked. And they're like, well, you know, the people that usually get killed are the ones that are bringing in infiltrators or people that are poisoning our uh, our representatives. And you don't know until you're there or if you live it. But I wanted to point that out. But elections are key. See, they kept trying to push election machines into their nation. They succeeded just a little while ago. Now look at Africa. Now, why is that important? Because... Smart cities is the goal. This is how things like that happen. Smart cities take away your right to privacy. Um, Millie Weaver and I were having a conversation about that a few years ago. I think it was 2019, right? And then again in 2020, where it's all about putting people on the system. And here is our neighbors in Canada and what one person said when they resigned because of what they saw was happening. My name is Ann Kavukian, and I resigned in protest from the Sidewalk Labs Smart City Project. Ann Kavukian is the former Privacy Commissioner of Ontario. She was hired by Sidewalk Labs to develop a privacy framework for their Smart City Project on Toronto's waterfront. Sidewalk Labs is an alphabet company and the Alphabet Company, Google, right? Alphabet Inc. is Google. They are creating smart cities and they bid on the smart city that was um, being proposed in Toronto and they succeeded at that. So when they approached me, they approached me because they said they wanted me to embed privacy by design into the smart city they wanted to create for Toronto. There's going to be tech everywhere, 24 seven uh, sensors and cameras and everything to capture 
all the activities in the smart city, in the city that was taking place, so that they could help you get from point A to point B and get you information. But you can imagine, if you have all these sensors and this tech on 24-7, it's going to collect a lot of personal information, which the citizens aren't going to want. So I wanted to embed privacy by design into the whole smart city in order to prevent the privacy harms from arising. Anne presented Sidewalk Labs with a list of recommendations to ensure privacy as a foundation for the proposal. So my main suggestion after I studied this for a while was we had to embed privacy into everything. We had to de-identify data at source. And what I meant was whenever the camera or the sensor or whatever tech picks up some occurrence, people driving, people walking on the street, whatever, whenever it picks up any data, the minute it picks up the data, you strip it of all personal identifiers. You strip it of the license plate numbers on the cars, etc., so that you will still have a massive amount of data, but none of it will be privacy invasive because there won't be any personally identifiable data associated with it. No personal identifiers. See, that's what privacy is all about. You can have a ton of data. If it's not linked to personal identifiers that can be associated with an individual, then you have data, but there's no privacy risk. So that's why I insisted upon all data being collected being de-identified at source. And it was great. Sidewalk Labs went along with that at the beginning. But Sidewalk Labs would be the only entity to have control over the data, a fact that didn't sit well with some privacy experts and civic leaders who criticized their plans. So in response to this, Sidewalk Labs decides to create an urban data trust, which will consist of all of the parties involved in creating the Start City, not just Sidewalk Labs, but Waterfront Toronto, the provincial government, federal government, and all of the companies who are going to be delivering the tech, the IT companies, etc., to pull this together. That would have been fine, but when they announced it at a board meeting, they said, and of course, we will encourage all the companies to de-identify data at source, but we have no control over what they do. In effect, we can't make them do that. And the minute they said that, I knew that it was over. Okay. So listen to what she said. She said, Google was all like, yeah, sure. Let's take out the identifiers at the source. The minute it's captured, we delete it, but we handle it. And we will allow the companies, like the businesses, to decide for themselves, of course, if they want to enforce that right? Because they could allow that data to be collected. And then, you know, we can't control what the companies want, right? And this is where it gets sticky because this is exactly what we saw with the vaccine mandate. Oh, no, no, no. Federal government's not really telling you except for the military and except for a few people that we want to weed out. Uh, we're just telling the businesses that they should do it. I mean, they don't have to because a business can turn around and sue the federal government and say and say, who the fuck are you to tell me that I have to tell my employees that they are officially my slave and you are a slave because I am forcing you to put something in your body. I'm not a tyrant. I won't do that. But I don't see any companies doing that, of course. <laughs> so dumb. But that's the point. They say, yeah, we're not going to tell them, but here's what happens. 
your business, your pizzeria, and there's a shit ton of data. Uh, what age groups come, you know, you might have a bunch of, you know, 10 year olds that like your, your food. So Google will be like, yeah, you know, I can help you identify the trends of those kids that come and what class of parents come if they're rich or not. So you can adjust your prices because if they're rich and you know how much they have in their wallet, then you can up the prices and that way you make more profit. On the other hand, I can help you identify advertisements you can put and where because we can tell you who came to your store. So we can tell you where to buy ads. See, that's not Google telling them what to do. That's Google saying, you know, but if you do this and you unidentify, you can have all of this for free, <laughs> but you don't have to do it. Over. Because once you say it's voluntary, it's not going to happen. Everyone wants personally identifiable data. And that's what was so upsetting to me that they on their own decided to do this knowing how upsetting it would be to me and that in my view privacy would go down the drain so i couldn't tolerate that the next morning i resigned the project pressed forward but continued to face concerns from citizens and city officials then in may 2020 in the midst of the pandemic sidewalk labs abandoned development of the smart city well you know it was part of the covid world and they said, we, we just don't think this is going to proceed. Everything has changed. It was, it was nonsense. They just didn't know how they were going to do this in a way that protected privacy and delivered services. And remember, Waterfront Toronto was the body that was running all of this. And all of a sudden, Waterfront Toronto is saying, no, no, we're with Ann Kavukian on this. You must de-identify data at source. And they're saying... How are we going to do that with these companies? And it was, I think it was just became such a mess for them that they felt it was easier just to back out. Smart cities will eventually be built in Canada. But Anne urges us to decide carefully if we want a city of surveillance or a city of privacy. I'm on the International Council of Smart Cities. And I can tell you, all of the smart cities coming out in the Far East, Dubai, etc., they're all smart cities of surveillance. They know exactly what you're doing, where you're going, it would be a nightmare for me to live in a city like that. And, you know, one of the things I'd said to Sidewalk Labs early on is let's develop a model, smart city of privacy, that we can then offer to others. We, you know, um, Bill Gates wants to build a smart city in Florida. We can approach him and say, look, we've got the perfect model for this and it protects privacy. It's a total win-win. How many of you knew that Bill Gates owns a portion of Florida where he's building a smart city? Did you guys know that? Did you guys know that? Oh, but you're going to want to live there. It's going to have the best buildings, the best businesses, the best everything. But you didn't know that, did you? You want to know why Google backed out? <laughs> well, we don't need you. We got COVID. We're getting DNA. We're getting contact tracing. We're getting the president that we decide to put in there to do what we want to do. And we're going to have a series of hacks so we can see what everybody has. We're going to have the IRS tap into every single bank account. We'll be able to go in and see it all because people are stupid. Bill Gates wants to build a city in Florida. Did you know about it? Maybe if you're in Florida, you should look into that. I think we can still do that. 
We have to insist upon privacy being embedded into the smart cities. Otherwise, it will be a smart city of surveillance. And everything you do, all of your activities will be tracked, surveilled, the data exchanged with third parties unknown, unknown that you haven't consented to. Nightmare. We want to live in freedom. Privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. We have to do this. We can do this. We just need the will to do it. The will to do it when judges are sealing reports on voting theft. Did you know about that? How do you avoid it? Well, before we get into that, what techniques do modern day dictators use to control protesters? I think that's a very good question because maybe it'll be quite pertinent to what you're seeing right now. I think it would be a great conversation for us to kind of just listen to this really, really old segment. Finally tonight, a portrait of how today's dictators are confronting and controlling democracy activists. Hari Srinivasan has our book conversation. 2011 brought the year of the protester. Demonstrations rocked Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya. Yet despite this wave of pro-democracy movements, the number of free countries declined for the sixth year in a row. That's according to the Freedom House Research Institute. Oh, you know, they're talking about those protests, the Arab Spring that the CIA deployed. Right. Okay. We're just paying attention, right? One reason for that is authoritarian regimes are learning to manipulate political systems without using brute force for suppression. A new book by William J. Dobson, The Dictator's Learning Curve, Inside the Global Battle for Democracy, tackles that subject. For two years, Dobson traveled the world to examine regimes that managed to rule with a velvet glove in spite of their iron-fisted policies. William Dobson, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right, so if modern dictators aren't using firing squads or kidnappings, what are they doing to stay in power? Well, the modern dictator understands that if you're going to try and keep a hold of your people, you have to use new and different techniques, such as, take, for example, Putin. Putin chooses to send tax inspectors or health inspectors to close down or shutter a dissident group. Uh, in Venezuela, raw laws are written broadly and then used like a scalpel to uh, against any group that is deemed a threat. Um, the Chinese Communist Party frequently refers to democracy and ha- makes sure that all of its top leaders only serve two terms. There are all sorts of different ways in which regi- regimes are finding um, how to move and navigate through forces that challenge their regimes that make them appear to be other than what they are. So there's a scene in the book where you talk about uh, the, the, the tension on the streets in China after the revolutions were happening in the Middle East and they were, how they were trying to prevent any spread of a jasmine revolution. Describe that. Well, I was I was in China about 10 days after Mubarak fell, and it was an incredible moment because the party, on the one hand, there was no visible sign of revolution, but there was a tremendous tension. Uh, And there had been a call for people to assemble at different points around China at a particular moment on a particular day. And the regime knew that. Um, And so I was I went to one of those those spots at 2 p.m. on that Sunday uh, and 
it was it was an incredible thing. You you saw the fear that the regime exhibited by just the sheer number of police uh, that were present. But more than the police were the number of plainclothes policemen. I mean, there were moments when I was walking through crowds and literally three, four, five people around me, they all had earpieces. What do they try to do to prevent the crowds from assembling? They have really, you know, developed um, excellent crowd control techniques where they would would move the crowds through with uh, street cleaning equipment. Uh, and they would push people through with with lots of water, cleaning the same street corner again and again and again. Mind you, no one's actually coming out to protest. No one's actually declaring down with the Chinese Communist Party. If you were to do that, then you would be you, know, you would be rushed away in no time by security. But rather, the call had been for people just to come out for a stroll, and that was sort of a very that was a very clever way of going about it because you can't really arrest someone for just walking down the street. So there seems to be almost a cat and mouse game on what I would call the technologies of expression. Um, you know, help help folks understand that. One of my favorite examples is actually from Egypt before the revolution, where you had uh, members uh, of the April 6th movement who they um, put out a call on Facebook for people to rally around a strike that was going to happen in another part of the country. And they said to people, on that day, just don't go to work. Another easy way to sort of show your protest without actually taking enormous risk. Just stay within your home on that given day. And the, the support for this was enormous on Facebook. And so the regime's initial response was to start putting out a ticker on all television broadcasts saying, on April 6th, everyone must go to work. They inadvertently broadcast this message in a way that the, the members of April 6th never could have imagined. Egypt is a country of 81 million people. The regime had mistakenly, inadvertently communicated this protest to everyone. Let's talk a little bit about Syria. It's in the news. We see horrendous bloodshed there. Um, not necessarily advice for Assad, but how do you size that up? He's clearly chosen to go the old-fashioned route. Let's just mow people down. That's exactly right. He's really following his father's example, who in the early 1980s crushed uh, an uprising at that time by murdering more than 25,000 people in the space of a month. Um, his son hasn't killed that many yet over the space of a year, but he's taking that same approach. It's a slow-burning 20th century approach of trying to just resort to violence. And that's what the regime did almost right away, as opposed to others who have tried to accommodate these protests. I mean, the thing to remember about 2011 is that it wasn't just North Africa and and uh, the Middle East. This We saw protests spreading across the world, and we see how people re reacted in many different ways. In the case of Malaysia, there was a very sophisticated approach where they essentially ultimately welcomed some of the protests as signs of a mature democracy. In, in uh, Russia, much the same. Putin has complimented the protesters while using laws to squelch it. Which leads me to wonder if I'm a dictator and I have this control and there's people sort of saying whatever they want about me on Twitter and Facebook, why should I care? A certain amount of, of actual dissent, open dissent, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's like a safety valve that lets some of the pressure out of the system. It lets people feel a certain amount of freedom without actually having the, the means of acting. So you, you talk. You mean like Black Lives Matter? You see, what they're expressing is all the Arab Springs that have popped up. Syria was taking care of all the Arab Spring actors that they had planted in there. I mean, they got they got through on, you know, Lebanon and they did Libya and they I mean, it was crazy. Right. But what he's explaining to you is that they allow you to think you have the right to protest just to then nab you. So you thought you have the right to protest 
a broken election. Because, you know, you didn't go and steal Chanel bread. You didn't go and get, you know, you know, Nike milk. You didn't torch the place or shoot a retired chief of police in the head to steal a TV because you were oppressed and felt disenfranchised. You simply turned up. And yet many people that have simply turned up have been arrested. Do you see how that works? This is how it's selective, right? This is how it's selective. This is what dictators do. People need to be looking at this. This is what dictators do. Talk a lot in the book about almost a burgeoning cottage industry between pro-democracy movements and how much the U.S. government, as well as others, are trying to foment change in different ways. Um, talk a little bit about how they're learning from each other. Well, that's it's an important element because when I was traveling to a lot of these different countries and I would talk to different um, student groups or activists, uh, you name it, they would often draw off of examples that they had uh, gathered from other places and other times. So the call for people to go for a stroll in Beijing and across China, that was something that was actually done during the Solidarity Movement in Poland in, in the 1980s. Um, others were taking um, lessons from the young Serbs who had overthrown Milosevic in 2000. Um, when you have a uh, police official or, or goon that really enjoys beating up children and beating up protesters, what do you do? They took a tactic from, from the Serbs where they take photographs of the person beating these people, they get their cell phone numbers, and they, they plaster posters of the, of the man beating the kids in the places where his wife shops, wow. where his children go to school. If we can't confront him through the badge, through the state, we can use his own family to shun him and to make him stop. All right. The book is called Dictators Learning Curve. William Dawson, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That is a fabulous read. That is a fabulous read. I mean, we're the sticker brigade. They did that when they wanted to escape communism in Russia. That worked very well because it subtly gave a message even to the brainwashed that there was a, a message that communism is bad. And it was done all in joke and fun. But how many of you have seen your stickers ripped off? I have. They tear them off, too. You could see that they're viciously trying to take them off. You see, when you're at a place where you realize that you are only free on paper and you're not even exercising that, you get upset. You get upset a lot. But like I've said before, the only way you win over tyrants is by protecting the institution that houses the foundation of that which you seek to protect. Your freedom is in that constitution, right? That's what you want to protect, your freedom, your child's freedom, your grandkids' freedom, and freedom in perpetuity for the United States. So in order to protect your freedom, which is found in the U.S. Constitution, you must protect the institution that houses it or protects it. And that is your court systems. Now, many of you will say we have corrupt judges. Yes, we do. They play politics outside of the scope of Article 3. But the more you pounce, the more you file, the more you ask them to be held accountable, the more they go on the record of being corrupt. And the more you can see the ones that are not. And that is how you win such a war. I mean, there's a judge that literally sealed 
the report on voting machine vulnerability. Now, what does that mean? I mean, all the voting machines are vulnerable because what? Because the machines are fixed, right? They've been fixed. They've been upgraded and done again and again and again, right? They have. So why would a judge seal it? I want you guys to take a listen to this amazing interview with this lawyer, um, Olson. Tell us what we're going to try to play clips from last night. Tell us what's going on with this bombshell. Okay, so we have a uh, Professor Holderman from the University of Michigan, who is a cybersecurity expert. The clips that, that you're the Senate Intelligence Committee's hearing on how election uh, machines, these by Dominion, ESNS, and these other machines can be hacked and manipulated to steal votes, even on a national scale. And this was a hearing held in 2017. Professor Holderman was one of the testifying experts and actually testified that he has hacked into these machines. He has manipulated votes and he knows exactly how it's done, or at least several of the methods that they can be done and that they're completely insecure. At the same time, so fast forward four years now, Professor Holderman has also been involved in a case in Georgia where where the plaintiffs were trying to stop Dominion machines from being used in that state because they are so insecure and they can be used to steal elections. We just found out last week that he has filed a 25,000 word report detailing exactly how these machines can be used and specifically Dominion voting machines can be used to steal elections. And it's documented. The judge has put this report under seal. But Professor Haldeman is sounding the alarm, and he has actually filed a declaration with the court seeking to unseal it so that it can be given to CISA. And CISA is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And among other things, they're responsible for ensuring the safety of our critical infrastructure, including voting systems. So this is a national security issue. And these machines are just not used in Georgia, according to Alderman, the ones that are at risk, but they're used in 16 states. And he is saying, and he's attesting to this under oath, that all these states could be at risk of having stolen elections. And of course, we know that it would also apply to the 2020 election, but he doesn't say that so much. But the judge has put this under seal. Secretary of State Ratzenberger, the Georgia Secretary of State, is objection, objecting to this document even being given to CISA. And by the way, Professor Holderman also said that he contacted CISA and they think it's so important that they see it that they're ready to go as soon as they get the report. It's it's just a it's a it's an incredible situation of uh, people okay, sticking. Hold on. I, I, I just I just want to hit rewind here for oh. a second because we didn't have the clip what is repeat this up, but I just want to make sure people go back to the beginning. Who is this guy? Why is it? Because we've never really been machine guys here. You know, we, we, we bless Mike for doing the machine thing. So we're saying, hey, we're kind of old school. It's stolen the old fashioned way. Right. So what what tell me? Tell me, who is this guy Haldeman? Why is he such a big deal? Where is he giving testimony? And why is this report now so important that that everybody wants it unsealed? So Professor Haldeman is from the University of Michigan. He's a renowned cybersecurity expert. He has been. Uh, by his own testimony in front of the U.S. Senate, 
four years ago had been doing it for 10 years then in terms of analyzing election machines and how easy and vulnerable they are to hacking on a national scale, that these machines are wide open, according to many cyber experts, and can be used to be hacked in and to steal votes. And I'll, and I'll just read you one, one critical paragraph in his declaration that'll encapsulate exactly what I'm saying, or what he is saying, under oath, by the way. And this is what he says, informing responsible parties about the ICXs, that's the Dominion voting machine at issue, vulnerabilities, is becoming more urgent by the day. Foreign or domestic adversaries who are intent on attacking elections certainly could have already discovered the same problems I did, yet Georgia's 2022 primaries are less than nine months away, and other states that use the ICX will conduct high-profile elections even sooner. It is important to recognize the possibility that nefarious actors already have discovered the same problems I detail in my report and are preparing to exploit them in future elections. Providing my report to CISA will ensure that Dominion and affected jurisdictions are able to begin appropriate mitigation. He's an expert. One of the reasons I want to say he's an expert. This is a guy, I think it was the same, I know the same guy, 10 years ago that, that actually talked at Harvard and gave a analysis of India's problem with the machines, right? This guy's been going around the world forever as the top expert about these machines. How is it, though, we're in October, we're, we're less than three or four weeks away from the anniversary of 3 November, and we're just finding this stuff out now. How, how, how does that work? If this guy was ta- talking about this prior to the election, would, with all the resources people were throwing at it, why is it just now coming up? That and why has never nobody gone after Raffensperger until until now? Why are we doing this in October of 2021? That would be the the posse's first question. Well, well, this declaration we just discovered this. It was filed on September 21st, but criticisms of machines have been going on for years, and it came from everybody on the left, including, for example, Senator Warren, Senator then Senator Kamala Harris. They're on videotape. They've held hearings about how easily these machines are hacked and manipulated. But that was all before the 2020 election. So it, this is well documented. There are movies. There's an HBO documentary called Kill Chain with yep. another expert called Harry Hursty who, who just details how easy it is to hack our elections. This is not new. So how is this? But, Kurt, we got a couple of minutes here. How is this going to affect? You've had the class action suit with Dershowitz uh, yes. filed last week that we had Dershowitz on. We had the Dershowitz tapes from, from, um, from um, Frank's speech. How is this going to impact these other cases that Mike Lindell's involved in? Oh, it's going to impact them huge. And I'll, and I'll read you a statement from Professor Halderman in another declaration that we just obtained regarding this report. And then this, this is what he says. He says, I have been attempting since January through plaintiff's counsel to meet with Dominion to confidentially discuss the vulnerabilities in my report. However, Dominion has yet to agree to meet. It would be dangerous to provide Dominion with the complete report if it were then disclosed through discovery in the company's various ongoing defamation suits to anyone who might misuse it, he says. This basically blows Dominion out of the water. This report, and we don't know exactly what it says because it's under seal and because people like Secretary Georgia Secretary of State Rapsberger are try- and Dominion are trying to keep it that way. As a matter of fact, you can see from Professor 
declarations that neither Dominion nor Rapsenberger, they're trying to, yeah. to bury. And, and sorry if you remember the old show, Hogan <laughs> and Schultz. You know, I see nothing. Yeah, yeah. Hang, yeah hang, on, hang on one second. Um, the question, uh, please stay over the break. The question yeah. gets to be what can be what can be their argument? What 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 argument could they even make to the judge when it's in the public interest to know minions paid for by taxpayer money? I don't even know how you can make an argument to keep the thing sealed. It's, it seems so <laughs> evident that all this information has to be out there. We're going to take a short break. Kurt Olson, the lead attorney for Mike Lindell. Can they this thing's under seal? How can they yeah. even make an argument? How can they even make an argument to keep it sealed? This is for the public interest. Remember, we've got this massive controversy. You have people out in Arizona today that are starting elected officials in the Senate, which has the plenary power out there, that are starting a movement to decertify the presidential election of 2020. And that is you've got a huge group of people in Georgia that are moving towards that. You've got major court cases in, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania between the president pro tem Corman and the acting attorney general Shapiro, which will determine the governor's race there. You got on, you got in Wisconsin now in Michigan on fire throughout this nation. And people, by the way, the economist or the economist poll shows us 42% of independents believe that Biden's illegitimate, that he did not win the election with totally legal means. This is a constitutional crisis. How can any, it seems to me the argument's pretty straightforward. It's for it's for it's for information related to and knowledge and background information related to the use of these machines. And like I said, I'm I've never taken a thing that Dominion's all thing. I've told Mike in, in many times on here. That's a hard one to prove. It just is because you got to connect a lot of dots. Whereas the the old ground game part is is to me much easier. But I don't know how this. I don't know how judges and open it up right away. What's the what's the holdup? So the, the typical excuse that you see is that these evidence about how easy it is to hack these machines shouldn't be made public because it would make it easier for a lot of other people to hack the machines. It's a nonsensical argument because all it does is it just keeps the facts about exactly how unsecure these machines are from the public because they're trying to gaslight people. There's no reason why this report shouldn't be made public far and wide. In particular, as Professor Haldeman notes, there are 16 states that are, that are at risk, and every citizen in those states should be blowing up their state representatives and their attorney general's phone okay. to get this report. And I can. How list do we get? States. We got to. We no, yeah. We'll just get us the list, and we'll put it up on the screen and put it into the live chat. And we'll blow it out. Uh, how can people? So that's what people need to do. We got to put the states, the 16 states that have the machines, and they got to go to their secretaries of state and to their attorney generals and say, "We got to end this nonsense." Where where is this judge? How how can people get involved in making sure this judge understands that this report's got to be open? How can people do that? So the case is pending in the federal district court in the northern district of Georgia. The plaintiff's name is Curling C U R L I N G, and then there's an et al because there are a number of parties. Yeah. Uh, versus yeah. Rapsenberg, the Secretary of State. Okay, we'll get the information up there. Kurt, uh, how can people, are you on social media? How can people follow you? Because there's an intense interest in all this Mike and uh, Dell litigation. How can people follow you? I'm actually, I've actually avoided social media. <laughs> <laughs> you're, the, you're the lawyer for the right, you're a lawyer for, a, for the right guy then. Okay, Kurt Olson, sure. you're a real warrior. Thank you for coming on. We're going to drill down more on this and hopefully have you back on this topic. He is a real warrior. And the judge decided to, you know, shut that down a little bit. 
Well, I'm just going to tell, oh, you know, I want to get into it, but I can't because I actually have to garner up. But what I can tell you is in closing, in closing, I got a movement. I got some movement in my Supreme Court case in Ohio. And I just got the response from the attorney general's office and their response is such bullshit. It's got shits on a case law that is skirting the whole question of the constitution. So they're saying that I don't have standing, right? Because I haven't shown how I've been injured. Fucker, you've been injured too. You're wearing a mask. You've been contact traced. You've been given temperature. They're upset. Why? Because the mandamus is not only requesting an action of doing their job, right? But it's causing prohibitions to other places. It's not my fault that that one action will do all of that. So that's number one. He says that I lack standing because I haven't shown an injury. The fuck I have. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I should be more elaborate because it was a very short filing. Another thing is he said that I don't have the, the ability to have standing, right? Because I have to have a merit on a thing that injury has been done. It could be traced to the defendant. Fuck you. Every time I had to go to Walmart, I had to wear a face diaper. If I need to use a bus, I have to wear a face diaper. If anybody gets sick, I get contact fucking traced. I enter the federal courthouse. They want to take my temperature. That's compelling me. That's compelling me to partake in a healthcare system. All of that is against the Ohio state constitution. Hold on. I should share this. You should see it. I mean, it's public. Why not? I can't wait to get my answer ready or I could just take it fast track it to SCOTUS. So then he says, I failed to state a claim for the mandamus. So yeah, says I don't have standing when every fucking citizen, including the judges on the Supreme court that are reading this have been compelled to participate in a healthcare system. Then he further claims that you can't trace that I've been injured by that. Oh, well, yes, I have. My rights have been violated, sir. So I don't know what you're talking about. So this is this is the three things that, that these geniuses came up with. One, the court lacks subject matter jurisdiction because the action I'm requesting them to do is going to cause prohibitory injunctions. You can't have fucking anything going on if it's against the Constitution. So it's prohibited by the fucking Constitution. I don't know why that's so difficult. Why are they making it complicated? That's number one. Number two, I lack standing because I can't prove that, you know, my rights were violated. Uh, yes, I can. Uh, the wine has been sued multiple times for violating all those rights. So why do, what is this? This just looks like garbage. Like who wrote this? I, I mean, obviously they've put some really nice stuff in here. Oh, it lacks any factual allegations concerning harm. You mean I have to die? Anything that violates my constitutional right is harm. I don't have to die to make a claim. And then lastly, I failed to state a claim for it. 
to be entitled to a writ mandamus, the party must establish by clear and convincing evidence, one, a clear legal right to request relief, two, a clear legal duty on part of the respondent to provide it, and three, lack of adequate remedy in ordinary course of law. Yes, yes, there is a lack of remedy because all of the institutions across the state are implementing these violations into the Constitution. So now I get to answer because, you know, all I did was put out all the bombs down and now here come the mines. Now they must tread carefully because this is where it happened. So this is what they had. That's all. Those things. Those things that I'm not allowed to file this because they're, you know, no, you can't do that because if you grant her relief, then there's prohibition across the whole state. Yeah, that's the fucking point. It should have been prohibited in the first place because that's what the Constitution says. So, so they've come back with the weakest ass argument without decrying that I don't have a constitutional right, but trying to argue that I haven't been injured. I have. I don't have standing and it's not fair if the court does this because it's going to prohibit all the agencies and all the private and public companies from doing things. This is the attorney general, right? His motion towards the Supreme Court to dismiss my case. Yeah. Now I get to respond. This is going to be fun. Now I get to respond. Everything is unconstitutional, public or private. And what they're upset about is that if I get granted this mandamus because I have every right to, I have full standing, I have full injury. Well, then they're upset that this has never happened before. And you can't, you know, issue a mandamus that's going to, you know, um, cause prohibition. So basically my thing said that Governor DeWine needs to task Yost to do it. And Yost is like, she can't task me to do that because that's making prohibition across the state. I guess Yost isn't being reelected. But, you know, that's a weak argument. So thank you about that, Dave. We'll take a look and see how it is. So I got to let you guys go. This is so good. Um, so I'm really, really excited because the response shows what they got. And they absolutely have nothing. They have nothing. They have nothing. They have absolutely nothing. So that's fantastic. So I'm going to let you guys go and I'm going to kind of delve into this, read into it and look how I'm going to tackle it. In the meantime, you know, guys, this is America, America, the best nation on this planet. Our foundations are being protected by the courts and we're going to use those courts until we get to the right judges that are still standing by those foundations. God bless. Lately, USA is getting scarier. Half of the Americans I see all hate America. They hate the cops doing their best to take care of us and kneel for the flag and salt the soldiers that we're burying. I'm tired of the fishing and complaining. Why you living in America if all you do is hate it? You think it's brave to take a stand against the nation. Real bravery is dying for the right so you can say it. Dear America, what happened to Americans? Apparently no one's aware or cares that it's embarrassing. It's arrogance. Our greatest enemy was always slavery and terrorists. And now it's people in the country trying to burn the heritage. I can't help it, I just seem to see the world different It ain't Republicans or liberals, it's mental illness The internet is only interested in left opinion Cancel culture's got more power lately than the First Amendment If you don't like it, leave, we will not defund police We don't want no riots in our neighborhoods or in the streets We respect freedom of speech, we protect what we believe We don't want nobody dead, so please do not tread on me In America, the freedom ain't free In America, that soldiers died in 
going overseas, so America, you say what we believe, my America, I won't ever take a knee. My freedom is the reason you can disrespect our flag. If my stars and stripes offend you, then I'll help you back your backs. America. Does anybody know what the hell happened to the Patriots? Lately, this nation is so ashamed and hating itself. Did everyone forget that people died to pay for this? Ungratefulness, United States gave everything to you just to help. I just want to celebrate Thanksgiving with my family. I don't need your help to understand it was a tragedy. Can I just be thankful for my country eating happily without you trying to kill me for the genocide and casualties? I can't help it, I just seem to see the world different. It ain't black or white, it's conflict designed by the system. I don't need your pronouns, all I see is men and women. Kids are taking pills for fun while people can't afford prescriptions. If you don't like it, go. Hate it, then don't call it home. We don't need no violence, got no time for all you radicals. Screw the status quo, we're not animals. I won't kneel for the anthem, cause the flag is what I'm standing for. In America, your freedom ain't free. In America, that soldiers dying overseas. So America, you say what we believe. You can hate the government and still love the country. The fundamental values of America are country. Republicans and liberals are dumb to put it bluntly. They're labels that they use to create chaos and corruption. You can know the history and still be proud of where you're from. Every flag around the world is covered in a little blood. We started out United States divided is what we've become. If home is where the heart is, you should show America some love. In America, the freedom ain't free. In America, that's all just dying overseas. So America, Say what we believe, my America. I won't ever take a knee. My freedom is the reason you can disrespect our flag. If my stars and stripes offend you, then I'll.